Good morning, Grove. I hope you're doing well today. Just to keep current with Joshua, check out these socks. Maybe not as hip, but just as loud. With any great football story, there's usually a great locker room speech. A group of men standing together, being encouraged, rallied by a passionate coach. The message is short, it's pithy. It's focused on the execution of the game plan. Its purpose is to stir passion for excellence and executing that game plan and bringing unity among the team. Great teams feed off that energy and use it as fuel once on the playing field. We fans, we love to watch and listen. To see the eyes of the men and their body language as they're being motivated by the tempo and delivery and the volume fluctuations of the coach's voice. Our own emotions are stirred and we feel ready to take the field and give them our all for victory. The only problem is we're lacking. Lacking what? Preparation. Works. We're not prepared to go and win a victory there. In football and almost every sport, the coach can't go in a locker room with just any group of people and motivate them to win without putting in the work. Anyone with a pulse can be motivated to believe in something, to put faith in it, but it takes work and preparation to put that faith into action. If that is all those great sport teams had was stories of faith, the retelling of them would be way different. Let's imagine this morning the chess team taking the place of the football team. After the passionate locker room speech, the chess team took the field and had tremendous faith to win, but they couldn't complete a tackle or complete a pass. Those players needed to put in the preparation and time and work to execute the plan. So all the faith and none of the work, they're gonna get creamed. If you have your Bibles today, please open them up to the book of James chapter two, verses 14 through 26. Our message today is about faith and deeds. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, what a joy it is to stand here this morning with your loved ones and be able to preach, Father. But I ask now that you diminish me, Father. Lord, just any pride I would have in being able to deliver this message or any fleshly heart thing that would come through this morning, just take it away, Father. Guard my heart, Lord. Just bring your words down from heaven. Use me as your vessel to bring them this morning, Father. And I pray for those that are going to listen this morning, Father, that the troubles of life and all the things that we deal with, Lord, just help those melt away this morning and give them ears to hear what you have to say. And Lord, I just pray for the students as well this morning that sometimes maybe the relevance of some of these messages aren't there, but Lord, your word can penetrate and help anyone this morning, Lord. And I just pray for everyone that this word would uh, be hidden in people's hearts and give you glory. Lord, I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. First, let me recap where we've been in these series. The book of James moves us through some very practical cornerstones of our Christian faith. The first part of James' letter really gives hands and feet to our faith in Christ. Derek, during the first week of the series, shared 
that are a follower of Jesus, you can expect trials in your life. The first Christians knew that well. In Acts 8, a huge persecution rose out against the Jerusalem church that caused those Christians to be scattered everywhere. Satan hates it when God's kingdom is progressing, and he'll do everything he can to stop it. And today, Satan works the same way. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're living a life for Jesus, you can expect that Satan will bring trials into your life. And then we learned in the second week that our goal in life should always be to live righteously. Our goal, even in the midst of very difficult times, should be to act in a way that will bring honor to God. We're to act and live righteously. Then last week, Joshua talked to us about favoritism. We must never allow favoritism to have a foothold in our lives or our church. As Joshua said last week, the church should be a class-free and judge-free zone. Everyone from every stripe of society is welcome here. Which brings us to this morning, now in chapter 2 of James, verses 14 through 26. Our faith should manifest good deeds. Our faith in Christ should drive us to do good work, the kind of work that Jesus would do. So why do you think a church, or why do you think James would send this letter to a church of Messianic Jewish people? I mean, they were God's chosen people already, right? For hundreds of years, the Jewish people had the commands of God. The Jewish leaders had compounded those commands to a list of works. Each law of God had a whole series of commands added to it. There was literally thousands of them, and they thought they were right because they had kept the law. They did all those works and thought they'd earn favor with God, but they hadn't. The law was put into place to show everyone how far off they really were. If you took the thousands of laws the Jews had written, or the 613 listed in the Old Testament, or if you whittled it down to the Ten Commandments, or if you just took the two greatest commandments of Jesus, love God and love others, if you took the laws at any level, we would all know we are lawbreakers. No one has kept any of the commandments. Romans 3, 19 through 20 tells us, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Then Jesus showed up on the scene and he made his case very clearly. They could not earn their work. They could not earn or work their way into heaven. Why? Because salvation is a gift. It comes through the grace from God, not from obeying a list of laws. To earn your place into heaven, you need to be perfect, and no one has done that. You need to have perfectly kept every one of God's laws 100% of the time. If you want to be saved, you must accept and receive the gift of salvation from Jesus. He is the only path to salvation. Now, I would suspect that the Jewish believers saw their faith now displayed by belief in the gospel, and listening to the messages preached by the apostles, they had a license to sit back. In other words, 
they were able to take a permanent vacation from work. But that was absolutely false. And that's what brings us to our message in James today, summed up in one phrase. Faith without deeds is dead. It's exactly what James says in chapter 2, verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And today I want to take that phrase and I want to break it apart, and I have four thoughts to share with you. First, our walk with God begins with faith. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's a simple truth, really. Salvation is not earned, it is a gift. God gave it. It came through his grace. We did nothing at all to earn it. We're all familiar with earning something. Most of us here have jobs, and we go to work, and at the end of the week, we're due a paycheck. We earned it. We deserve it. But salvation is nothing we can earn or deserve. In fact, the only thing we can earn with God is eternal separation from him. Romans 3.23 says, For we have all shinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 6.23, it tells us that the wages of that sin is death. The thing we earn by being a sinful person is hell. That is what we deserve. And if we're going to get to heaven, we need someone to save us someone to pay for our sin. And that someone is Jesus. He paid our debt. He personally paid the price for each of us to be given eternal life. Salvation is that gift from God. So we know what salvation is. So what is faith? I think Derek set me up with this Greek word this morning. The Greek word for faith is pistis. It's what it is. The word speaks of having a firm persuasion or conviction about something. Soren Kierkegaard, he is a 19th century existential philosopher, and he defined faith as a leap in the dark. He said it was like standing on the edge of the cliff and looking over into pitch blackness. And he said that you want to believe there's a God down there to catch you if you jump, but there's really no way to know, it's dark. So you just have to jump. You have to take that leap. You jump hoping that you don't go splat right on the bottom. But that step, according to Kierkegaard, is faith. But the Bible, it defines it in a much more better way and not as a blind leap. Hebrews 11.1 defines it this way. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is sure certainty. You don't jump hoping, you jump knowing. You know there is a God down there who's gonna catch you. Faith is like getting on an airplane. It's crazy to think that hundreds of thousands of pounds of metal, along with all the passengers and luggage, all that combined weight that that thing's ever going to be able to leave the, the ground. Nobody in their right mind would get on one of those things. But we do. 
I do regularly, and I fly all over the eastern United States. And why do I do that? Because I know planes really can fly. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I have a firm conviction that, and have the faith that they really can fly. I'm absolutely sure that the plane and the crew is trustworthy to do their job. Faith is taking your life and putting it in the hands of God because you are certainly sure he has you, that he is good to deliver on all of his promises. Faith is trusting that God can see you through. Faith is that trusting that Jesus is enough, that Jesus has the power to save us. And why do we believe that? Because of the resurrection, that's why. Death had no power to hold Jesus down. He came back to life and lives today. And one of the most important reasons is because the group of followers that was with him, the witnesses that were there, they all took that to their graves and were killed for it and believed in it. And that resurrection gives us something to put our faith in. We come to the Christian life believing in it, putting faith in it. We begin our Christian lives by putting our faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross and working to follow his example and commands given to us on his earthly ministry. And that leads me to my second thought. Faith is the first step that leads to deeds. So we're saved by grace through faith in that finished work of Christ. And then James comes along and writes this, James 2.18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. You show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Say, what? Are we saved by grace through faith? Or is it all about works? Who's right, James or Paul? The answer is both. It's that old adage, context, context, context. We just need to stay in context with Paul and read one more verse in chapter two of Ephesians. When God offered you salvation, he saved you for a purpose, his purpose. It's exactly how Paul continued in Ephesians. Let's check out that verse again with verse 10 included in this time. <clears throat> there you are. There it is. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And here it is. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Right there it is. There's the verse that goes right parallel with James. So God created us from good works from the very beginning. We see that all through the Old Testament, it constantly is showing us examples how God used his creation to do his work. It began with Adam and Eve. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. God, God called Adam and Eve to do good works. He asked them to fill, subdue, and rule. Those are all action words. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was asked to be placed there and take care of it. God put him to work. Then Adam was directed to name all the animals. There was work. Then it's transitioned to Abraham. Genesis 12.1. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. He put Abraham to work. Go here, move there. 
Then later in life, he was asked to sacrifice his son. That took some work. Serve and follow me, as was the message he gave to Abraham. Let's not forget Moses. Moses was put to work. God reached out to him in the burning bush in Exodus 3, 4. God called Moses into action. He said, go, speak to Pharaoh. Then Moses would use his staff to perform mighty acts displaying God's power. Then when they got into the desert, he was to take on the responsibility of leading God's people. That's all work. How about the Ten Commandments and Exodus 20? All good works if we're obedient to them. Then the prophets of God simplified it in Micah 6, 8. Has he shown you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Acting justly takes work. And we all know that being loving and giving mercy to others is work. Walking with and being humble with God, that is work. So here's the question. Is faith enough? No. James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, well then good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. If all you need to do to be saved is to believe that there is one true God and have faith in him, well believe me, the demons have done that. They've seen God. They know he is real. They know what Jesus did. They know he died and rose from the dead. So are they saved? No. Faith is the first step. Then God calls you to a lifestyle change. He calls you to live, to work, and do the things he wants you to do. So now you're sitting there going, okay, Brad, you're telling us today that Christianity is a work-based religion, right? Absolutely not. I'm certainly not. A work-based religion is one where the believer needs the, to do the work to earn salvation. And Christianity is the only religion where God did all the work to redeem his believers. What I'm telling you today is, is that by knowing about that free gift, accepting that free gift, putting faith in God who did all the work for that gift, well, it should stir something up in us, shouldn't it? How should one respond to all what God has done for us? How could not one of us not want to go and do all the good work to help spread that news to others? How could we not want to join God in the action for the cause to save the world for his kingdom? The Holy Spirit has been given to us from God to spur us to do good works and to help declare the truth. Just like that football analogy earlier, God's got a plan and we're his players and we're to execute it. The motivation was given by Christ through the cross and through his resurrection. We believe it and we put faith into it. So faith in deeds, that makes perfect sense to me. Let me recap. We are saved by grace through faith. We trust, believe, and accept that God did all the work to save us. Then we respond. We live for God. We do the work he gave us to do. We're created to do good works. God uses his believers to accomplish his good works. Having faith in the work done by God to save us, we're spurred on to do those good works. So faith brings about works. But does the Bible give us an example of someone applying this perfectly? Sure does. And that brings me to my third thought. Jesus is the perfect example. 
As you would expect, Jesus set the example of how to live our lives. Jesus told us, if you love me, obey my commands. Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up his cross daily and follow me. Total submission is what is commanded and modeled for us. That's the faith Jesus wants to see come to life in our actions. And when Jesus modeled it for us on how to live out those ideals, well, it brings me to a few points. Letter A, Jesus is always seeking to do the work of the Father. John 9, 4, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. See, it was crystal clear in Jesus's mind why he was here on earth. His focus was the work and will of his Father. He was never altered from his Father-ordained mission. He sought out the will and work of God, then he put himself right in the middle of that work. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before his crucifixion, he was praying, pleading with God to take the whole thing away. Jesus didn't want to do it, but then he resolved himself. In Luke 22:42, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was about the one thing, the will of God. Remember in Matthew 16, Jesus was telling his disciples about all that was going to happen to him. He was going to go to Jerusalem where he'd be suffered and killed and then rise again on the third day. And Peter said, never, Lord, you will never happen to you. Peter was going to make sure of that. So how did Jesus respond to Peter? In Matthew 16, 23, he said, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus was never about the things he wanted to do. He was always about the work of the Father. Jesus sought it out where God was working. He was going to be there. And second, Jesus was always focused on serving the Father and others. In John 17, In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Not only did Jesus seek out the place God was at work and put his attention there, Jesus didn't want to only applaud God's work, he wanted to help move it forward. So he rolled up his sleeves and he got busy doing the work of the father. And that work defined his life. In teaching his disciples, this is what Jesus said about his life. Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was later focused in Jesus' life. Luke 4, 8. Jesus then says, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He was never deterred. He wanted only to do the work of God and to serve him only. And that was Jesus. He'd laid down his life for the good of others and he served them. Serving God and others takes work and sacrifice. It takes an investment that doesn't pay dividends for ourselves. It pays dividends in others' lives, here in the present and in eternity. But that is the good works that God wants from us. So Jesus sought out the work of God, and then he dedicated himself to those places. And then the last point is, Jesus' service was prompted by love. 
John 13, 34 through 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Loving one another is agape love. It's God's love. And it's not a warm feeling type of love. It's a commitment to give yourself to other people's benefit. There's nothing selfish about it. It's focused on how to help others be where God wants them to be. And if you are going to truly serve others, you must be motivated by love. Take love out of the equation and you'll fail at service. As long as your eyes are on yourself, you'll fail to give yourself to others. And that's why Jesus was so successful. He only wanted what was ultimately best for his people he was serving. He, his love prompted him to lay down his life. And that gets us to our amazing verse in John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that love drove every action of his life. Jesus was a perfect example of life laid down to serve. And it leads to one last thought, my last of my four points. How do we respond today? Christians are people who have set Jesus up as a model for their lives. Their determination is to declare he is Lord and follow him. That being said, there are several steps we ought to willingly and immediately take on. First, we need to commit to following Jesus' example. In the upper room, just hours before he died, the disciples broke into an argument about who among them was the greatest. Jesus had clearly told them the time had come. Everything he told them that was going to happen, it was on the verge of happening. He would be arrested, tried, tortured, and killed. It was an emotional time for Jesus, and the disciples in all their sensitivity broke into an argument. Who would take Jesus' place as the leader of the group when he was gone? And Jesus, he only responded by stripping down, putting a towel around his waist, and washing their feet. Back then, fish washing was necessary, and all the preparations had been made in the room for them to be done. But as you saw, none of the other disciples were going to do that lowly task. So while they were fighting about greatness and who was going to be on top, Jesus took to serving their needs. He got on his hands and knees, and he washed their scummy, mucky feet. And then when he was done, he taught them. We read about that in John chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes, he put on his clothes, and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash another's feet. Then he continues on in 15 through 17. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Followers of Jesus commit to doing the things Jesus did. So here's the bottom line. Jesus was a servant, and Jesus showed his faith by his deeds. And the example he set through service should set the direction in our lives. We should live to lift up others by serving them. Secondly, 
Make service to God's kingdom a priority in your life. Ephesians 6, 7 says to serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And that's a serious, serious thing. Service should be a huge priority in our lives. If Jesus was a servant, and he was, then we should serve as well. Be committed to this. Make it a priority. And then third, always keep a humble perspective. In Romans 1.1, Paul starts his letter by saying he's a servant of Christ Jesus. The great apostle Paul introduced himself as a slave. This word speaks of a person who was literally owned by someone else. And where did he learn that? Jesus. Philippians 2.8, Paul says, Your attitude should be the same of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Then in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. To serve like Jesus, you need to be humble. And if he did it, so can we, so should we. And then lastly, watch blessing flow into your life. There is no greater gift than which comes from helping people grow closer to God. Whatever I can do, however I can serve others to make that happen, it's what I want to do. And if I could, as I conclude, I would like to leave you with another analogy. Wedding vows. Most of us in the room can relate to wedding vows. Wedding vows are promises shared between a bride and a groom for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health, for better, for worse. Anyone with a pulse can stand and make promises in faith, but it's the person who takes that promise and puts it into action that truly loves. So is your life one of action that displays your faith in God and his good works? You've declared that you love him. You've made promises to follow him. Are you standing up to the promises you made? Is your faith dead or is your faith alive? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you made it so abundantly clear in your word that we're a sinful people that cannot do anything worthy to earn our place in your kingdom. So you, out of your love and your grace, did that work for us. And now, as we're reconciled to you, you ask, won't you do good works for me? I've saved you. I've brought you out of the slavery of death and sin. Now, join me in good works and help bring others to the same place you're at. Lord, that's the question you ask of us. Will you join me at work? Lord, I just pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that as we go about our days, that we're constantly seeing where we can join you at work, where we can do your good deeds and display our faith that we have in you. Lord, just be with us this week. Give us that opportunity, Father. Lord, I just pray it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.